Mary Poppins, practically perfect in every way. Be the miners. Sure, they're like three years old. Miners, not miners. If you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. <laughs> I don't, don't want to kill you. What would I do without you? Every time someone says, I do not believe in fairies, somewhere there's a fairy that falls down we dead. We women who aren't afraid to fight, to stand up for our dignity. Transference is inevitable, sir. Every human being has an impact. There are no colored bathrooms in this building. And a simple string of pearls. Well, I don't own pearls. Lord knows you don't pay colors enough to afford pearls. Of evolution has taught us it's that life will not be contained. Life finds a way. Words are, in my not so humble opinion, our most inexhaustible source of magic. Hello and welcome. This is Bite the Pen. I am Jen Hansen, and sitting elsewhere is Miss Charlotte Martinez. Hello, Charlotte. How are you doing? I'm well. How are you? Good, good. We've been recording next door to each other for two years now since the show has started. So this is our first episode where we're actually, I think, where we're actually far apart. So that's kind of fun that technology allows us to continue to do the show after our hiatus. Yeah, that said, I even had a little guessing game for our listeners because I I am somewhat not far from where we started off yes. in the same city, to be exact. Whereas you are not only not in the city, you are not in the state. You're not even in the country. Oh, it's true. <laughs> so where in the world is Jen Hansen? <laughs> I've joined the circus, apparently. <laughs> it's fun. We're in 1938. Not a good year where I'm at, by the way. That's funny because where you're at is also going to pertain to our subject today. That said, here are your other hints, listeners, to where Jen is. First, she is in the location that is the capital of her country. It has a bridge that symbolizes peace. It has a reputation for art, for museums, for access to public transportation. This last one's a big one because this is the country where the most women were condemned of being witches. Woo! Wait. <laughs> she is in Berlin, Germany, out of all places. Ooh, that was a great game. I would never have guessed where I was based on that because I don't know about a lot of places. So it's very interesting to be here in Europe during the war. Especially being in Berlin, there's just a lot of craziness going on. And it's a really different experience, obviously, from America. But I like it. It's good. Berlin has had a huge influx of refugees from Ukraine. It's it's interesting. They get 10,000 people here every day. They get sent out throughout the country, basically dispersed throughout Germany and the other countries, I guess. And... Unfortunately, our skies in Santa Fe at the moment are a bit smoky. We're not bringing in tens of thousands of people, believe me, but there have been many evacuated in Las Vegas where the fire is blazing pretty strongly. Some of our family members as well, but they're they're not like in any danger. The property is fine. Risk level compared to what's happening over there with you is it's like 2%. It's not even <laughs> well, it's not a comparison. So. I shouldn't even have <laughs> oh mentioned <my> it. <laughs> well, I hope that everybody stays safe. I'm glad that they're taking the precautions that they need to take. We thought before we break into this episode that we should take a hot minute to discuss our favorite film series to date and that's fantastic beasts three i've seen it you've seen it wow can we talk about it for a minute yeah i want you to go first though because I, okay. I don't know i'm assuming our opinion is pretty equal but you know just in case you you should start. yeah it was better than the second one i will give them that my conclusion is this if it was a standalone film, this movie would be the best of the three. If you look at it as part of the series, there's a lot of holes that they left. And that's because the second film created so many holes that there's it's impossible for the third film to fill to make them all, you know, make sense. 
So standalone, it felt like it actually lived up to the title. There were fantastic creatures in it, and those beasts and creatures actually had something to do with the plot. And they were really cool. There was a lot of really interesting hybrid magic, non-magic combinations of animals, which is so Harry Potter, but with animals. And I, I really appreciated that part of it. Uh, what did you think? I agree. That was my biggest pro for the movie. They brought back the Fantastic Beast. That's great. I still wouldn't agree that it's it's the best out of the three if it was just a standalone because the characters are all over the place. No empathy for anybody. <laughs> and I'm trying to fill in in my head while I'm watching it what I know of the characters from the first two. And doing that while also trying to figure out the plot and all of these dropped threads, it's too much for me. But I think maybe a younger audience could follow and be fine with it. But I'm just such a sucker for character development. And if there's none of that, then I'm I'm gone. And I won't remember a thing from that movie, honestly, except maybe the creatures, like you said, because they played a good part in the plot. I, I just wanted them to come back to their roots. Let's focus on four core characters. That's what we liked about the Harry Potter. We followed three kids the whole time. If you look at the covers of Harry Potter, it's always Harry, Ron, and Hermione. Yeah. It's like they knew, they marketed that. You can relate to these kids, right? Let's keep having them in the story. That's gone. Yeah. I don't understand why that particular thread was never brought back. Like, let's bring it back mm. to the core four. But maybe right. I'm the only one who thinks that. I mean, Tina wasn't even in this one until the very end. And I was like, why do you even have her in this? Like, wh why? She was gone the whole time. But I'm personally not a huge fan of Tina, as you know. So it wasn't a huge loss to me. But it was still like, like what you said, she is one of the original main characters of the movie. So why is she gone all of a sudden? And why are we focusing on Kama when his storyline is over, like that was, that could have just been completely cut. I didn't understand that at all. They missed the ball on that. I think part of it, why I liked it so much, or not so much, but why I liked it more than the first one was I liked the Fantastic Beasts more. I like the animals that they created in this one more. And I think, honestly, I think that's a big part of it. Focusing on what they were advertising. Although the person I watched it with pointed out that it's still marketing wise and what they're trying to do with the franchise just to save money, I guess. I mean, at this point, I don't think they care all that much. But the Fantastic Beasts title is so tiny, whereas the Secrets of Dumbledore was blown up, just like the Crimes of Grindelwald was blown up. It's almost like they're trying to sweep under the rug that they tried the whole Fantastic Beasts thing. Hmm. Yet in this third one, it's interesting how they played it into the plot, but the plot itself was so... Muddled. everywhere that <laughs> yeah. I mean I like the concept yeah. I really did like the concept of a worthiness and like the politics was an interesting direction to go with but even that didn't make sense I'm like okay so we're allowing an animal to determine who leads even you even though you just said we're gonna vote on it I'm just so confused the whole time so confused definitely the ending was so dumb I was like what <laughs> is that <laughs> is that it Okay, okay. That's not really how movements work, but okay. Cool. I don't like any politics work. It's like, well, he lost, so I guess we'll just dismantle the group, you know? It's not like in America yeah. this very thing happened and it just fueled the fire. No, no, no. They were all just like, well, he lost, so we'll just go home and go back to life. I don't know. It's so weird. It's like, I think I was bored in the first one a bit. And in this one, the the imagery, the, the cinematography, it's all really beautiful. And it's too bad that the story isn't better because I'm, I'm giving it some slack because of that, but it doesn't really deserve that. It's just better than the, third, than the second one, so that's nice. There's still a huge disharmony between production value, which I would say is at its best. Like the whole time, I wanted to like it. The score, the actors, the costumes, the grandiose of everything mm -hmm. was beautiful. But the whole time, I'm distracted by my utter confusion by it all. <laughs> because yeah. usually you build 
a home with foundations and there is none. It's just all of the glamour of a pretty home that doesn't have walls. So I don't I don't know what to do with that. Yeah. And I feel bad because it could have been great, like you said. Yeah. I, you see it and you want to see it. And I, I just can't because story, I guess story is my foundation. But I wouldn't stop kids from watching it. I'd be like, yeah, you should watch totally. it. You'll be utterly confused, but you should watch it. <laughs> if you gorgeous. figure it out, kiddo, let us know. <laughs> I, I do think the best choice that they made was getting rid of Johnny Depp. Mads Mickelson, is that his name? Mickles? Yeah. He is excellent. He actually, to me, has some power behind him, and he's not just a weirdo. He's, like, present and a good match for Dumbledore. So I really liked that choice. He's one of those actors that can do, like, a menacing villain if you really wanted to, but also, like, a really stoic good guy. Strong, A strong man, but not in the negative sense. Man, if you zoom in on his face... <laughs> That's the moments where I like, I want to believe that your story is complicated. I don't see it, but just that face makes me believe it. Yeah. <laughs> and part of the movie takes place in Berlin. So that was fun watching it in Berlin. Hey. In, as they like pretend that they're not talking about Nazis. I was like, okay, cool. <laughs> this isn't awkward at all. Right. <laughs> <sighs> I tell you, if we ever rewrote it, that whole like muggle versus wizard, what they started with, that whole like global conflict and what Rindelwald was almost the highlight of in the conflict, which it never got there, by the way. And that whole like Jacob scene in the end, no spoilers, but it's a weird scene where you're like, okay, it could have been all about that, actually. So can we redo this and make it about muggles versus wizards? Because uh, that seems to be where it wants to go. So thank you for taking a minute to let us complain about Fantastic Beasts 3. Go see it. Make your own mind up. Tell us what you think. Tell us if we're wrong. But let's get into our actual topic today. That is the witch and the healer. For those who don't know, we posted a poll on our Patreon page, which you should check out if you want to. It's at patreon.com. We had a couple topics on there that we've been talking about. And I was really surprised, honestly, that this topic was so popular. 95% of the votes were for this topic. So I think that's really cool. My partner, for instance, is like so excited because this was the one she voted for. I, I think it's really cool that people are interested in the archetypes. And this is a really fun one. And it's interesting in terms of feminism and patriarchy and power. And it's got a lot of really cool stuff in it. So I'm really glad that you pitched this. Thank you for pitching this idea. We're just going to talk about the witch and the healer archetype, not, not archetypes, and how they're perceived, how we've adapted them over the centuries, and a particular witch slash healer archetype that we think personally is interesting. We're going to break down the episode in a way that I think most of our listeners are used to. I think we did it first with Rapunzel or Twilight Zone, but so we'll we'll take five characters that really highlight the evolution of the witch slash healer archetype. Our resident official unofficial historian here will give us some historical information. <laughs> She's saluting. <laughs> So she'll inform us about that, and then we'll talk about the literary source, and we'll break it into a you know a discussion on these points. And before we start, I think we'll just I'm just gonna say what the five characters are, just to give everybody an idea of where we're going. So the first one is Hecate, second one is Morgan Le Fay, the third one is quote the evil witch, four is Glinda the good witch. You also know her. And five is Hermione Granger. So, Charlotte, do you want to get us started? Before we jump into the actual characters, just as a reminder, we've talked about archetypes before in both psychology and in storytelling. And the big definition we used was from Christopher Vogler's The Writer's Journey. And what he said, and it's the perfect definition, it's constantly repeating characters or energies which occur in the dreams of all people and the myths of all cultures. That's key for us when we talk about story, which is these roles, these energies seem to appear globally. These symbols were already popping up in isolated cultures. And the witch archetype is 
the word witch itself is not very old, but the word goddess is, mother nature is, and you'll hear some of that when we talk about the witch archetype. But on that note, let's look at what the definition of witch is. And there are four that I think are valid to this day. And this is according to Merriam-Webster. So the first one, it says a person, especially a woman, who is credited with having usually malignant supernatural powers. That's pretty practical. The second one is a practitioner of witchcraft, especially in adherence with neo-pagan tradition or religion, such as Wicca. That's more modern, right? We're entering the new pagan practices. The third is a mean or ugly old woman. And it, it actually lists hag and crone. And then the fourth is a charming or alluring girl or woman. And that's more toward the temptress, the seductress. Those are also like subcategories of the archetype. So already that's a huge range of what witch could mean. Mm-hmm. And I don't know about you, after all the research that I've been doing for this topic, I've come up with a thesis. It's maybe only true for the Western world, but from what I can tell, is which is an archetype moved from an all-encompassing world healer, goddess in charge of birth, life, and death, to an all-encompassing scapegoat, the feared shadow of a patriarchal society. The story of woman is what this archetype is. (laughs) Yes, scapegoat especially, that's a very telling and succinct word for it. Right? Most definitely. And that's what it is. In history, in myth, in story, that's become scapegoat. So that's a lot of good info to keep in mind, just in general, and also for this episode. Yeah. So thank you for getting refreshing our minds on... The archetypes and then yes Mm -hmm. saying what needed to be said let's talk if you're ready about hecate our first character archetype and people say it different ways it could be hecate 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 okay but i I chose her as an example because i think personally at least in the western mythos she's the first fictional character to be called a witch to be transferred into that role and even back then witch was not i mean i don't know if witch was ever a positive thing which usually started as the negative Not now. Neo-pagans would proudly call themselves witches. Mm -hmm. But back then, you would say goddess. You would say sorceress, enchantress. Those were the positive terms. And Hecate was under that category of goddess. She's one of the Greek goddesses known to be both good and bad. And the World History Encyclopedia, this is their definition. She's associated with witchcraft, magic, the moon, doorways, And the creatures of the night like hellhounds and ghosts. Nice. Already she's an all-encompassing. Even back then, I think she was prey to for various reasons. But in the Greek mythologies and the texts and temples and objects that they uncover about her are revered and worshipped. So accepted. I think even after the Greek civilization fell I think the Romans even respected her and used her and prayed to her. So she was never out of the zeitgeist. She was always there as a role model for various things. But unfortunately, like we see with women in power, there was some darkness that began associating with her abilities. It went from goddess to witch pretty quickly. So that's who Hecate is. The source I shared with Jen was an excerpt from the Theogony, which is an epic poem by Hesiod. They date it around 730 BC. Oh, yeah, I remember that. It was a good year. Haven't you read that? Everybody's read the Theogony. (laughs) It's like bedtime reading, okay? I feel like it's the equivalent of trying to read the passage in the Bible where everybody begets everybody. This person begot that person and that person begot. It's a family tree is what it is. Hmm. But I'm pretty sure it's tedious to read. Yeah, that's a great description for it. That should be on the back cover. 
love it. So I shared this passage with you so we could kind of talk about it. But in this passage, it says, Hecate, whom Zeus, the son of Kronos, honored above all, he gave her splendid gifts to have a share of the earth and the unfruitful sea. She received honor also in the starry heaven and is honored exceedingly by the deathless gods. For as many as were born of Gaia earth and Uranus heaven, amongst all of these, she has her due portion. I mean, already that's more honor and respect than any woman we've ever known in our lifetime. Definitely, definitely. This is entirely mythology, so there's no equivalent with our culture, but being revered by the utmost god, Zeus, and that she has power not only over the earth, the heavens, the upper level, and then later the underworld, the bottom level. That's all three of the worlds. That's everything. (laughs) There's no other ones. She should have gone and saved Poppy Seed Chick. Poppy Seed? The chick that has to go into the underworld every winter or whatever. I'm so glad you brought that up. A pomegranate seed. Oh, good. (laughs) I think that story is where she gets the nickname of the three-faced goddess. If you out there, listeners, know anything about Hecate, it'll usually have something to do with the number three. Mm -hmm. When Demeter is looking for her daughter who's been taken by Hades, it's said that Hecate came to Demeter and said, I have an idea of where to look for her. And they go to Helios, the god of the sun. And he who sees all reveals to them that she has been taken by Hades. And Hecate is the one that goes with Demeter to the underworld to negotiate her terms of release. And after Zeus okays the compromise, which is that Persephone will stay in the underworld half of the year, Hecate becomes Persephone's companion, friend. Ah, There's a deep association there, which is that these women stay connected, all three of them, in a very grand way. And Hecate is able to come and go from the underworld. There's some dark associations there, which is that maybe she's deformed a little bit from being in the underworld for so long. But she also has many companions there. She makes friends with the demonic animals. She becomes associated with ghosts. All of that sort of comes from her relationship with Persephone. Nice. I like it. I was wondering, I thought the three faces, because I kept seeing images with the three faces, and I kept thinking that that meant the face for each, for underworld, regular world, and the upper. So that's what I thought the three faces were. So that makes a lot more sense. It's that too, Jen. That's what I mean. Nobody actually knows (laughs) what the three things are. Yet, if you research her, you've got Persephone, Demeter, her. You've got the Earth, Overworld, Underworld. You have her being associated with the three-pronged pathways. When you come to a fork in the road, that's a three-way. And that's where you give offerings and you pray to her at those situations. Okay. Like, oh, birth, life, and death that she had power in all three of those. Wow, she's got everything. Yeah, there's a lot of three in her and its origins could be any of those or all of those. (laughs) But it's interesting for being so busy and so pronounced. I know it's been thousands of years, but do you see Hecate as a protagonist in anything that we create today? I mean, I didn't even know about her before researching the witch, did you? I didn't, no. I mean, just from the research that I found, I I see now that she's in like everything, but it's amazing that I just never recognized it. So we said who she is. We said what source we looked at. And I'm going to say where her placement is in history. Here comes the historian part. This is in the Greek period called Archaic, which is 800 BC through 480 BC. In the bigger picture, I would say that the matriarchy before the Greeks came along, it still has remnants of its beliefs, which is like women are respected at least. Men still carry the most power, but they're at least counseled. Mm -hmm. But the goddess was said to have complete control over life. They were the birth, the life, and the death of all things in nature. When you needed help, that's who you prayed to. There was no monotheistic Christian god yet. Oh, there was some, in my research, they said there was some scholars who believe that maybe she was a transfer god that she wasn't originally a greek goddess she wasn't included like i said in stories as much as the other greek gods if i say zeus for example or apollo or artemis 
they were big protagonists in their stories. Mm. Whereas Hecate kind of only comes and goes as an overseer, which is interesting because she was said to be a titan. Interesting. And titans were on the same birth level as Zeus and his father, Uranus. They were part of the original makers of the earth. So maybe she is still so high that her stories are unknown. Worthy to know her origin stories or her personal (laughs) stories. She's like untouchable in that way. That's one of the theories is that maybe she didn't come from Greece. Maybe she was transplanted and people just like needed her as someone to worship. The hero that Gotham needs. (laughs) Oh God, every time. (laughs) The hero that they deserve. Exactly. (laughs) Which is true. I mean, we do something similar to the Virgin Mary nowadays because we don't have any goddesses Mm -hmm. and we need a woman in our psychology. So who do we pray to? We make Mary everything, which is not fair. And then just to throw that out there, some of the writings that she was included in, Homer's The Odyssey, she was said to have been the mother of Circe, who is a witch in the Odyssey that turns his crew into pigs. She's a seductress to begin with. She lures them in. Good girl. (laughs) Yeah. She was said to be under Hecate's training. So Hecate is definitely a, uh, she shapeshifts people. That's one of her abilities, as well as being like a seer and a healer, as well as a poisoner, Hmm. capable of good and bad. So more human. Yes. More complex, more dynamic. Yeah. Actually less like an archetype in that case. Medea? Do we know Medea? I mean, yes, but maybe not in this context. (laughs) Yeah, Medea's used a lot in pop culture now. That's kind of cool. She originally came from the Argonautica. And, you know, she turns kind of crazy later, but she starts off very helpful. That's good. And she also prays to the Temple of Hecate and is able to do shape-shifting things. And I guess they try to change the future, but that never ends up well Right? As we've learned in classics. Knowing the future never helps, apparently. Apparently. It's just a curse. (laughs) And the last big one is Shakespeare's Macbeth. If you read the play, she even comes in to a scene randomly. And it's during the double-double toil and trouble Mm -hmm. scene. She actually comes in right after that. And her words are, oh, well done. I commend your pains. And everyone shall share ere the games. And now about the cauldron sing like elves and fairies in a ring. Nice. That's her one and only line. Interesting. And then Hecate is out. (laughs) Mic drop, Hecate. You know, in Macbeth, there's three weird sisters who are set to resemble the three fates. Right. And that's what they're doing. They're predicting the future for Macbeth. Mm. So you have all of these sub-witches of hers already. And Medea and the weird sisters and Circe, they're already big roles. So if she's their overseer, she's like the first and mother witch. Nice. So that said, question is, where is she today? What's her character like today? I don't know. I don't know. That's a great response. <laughs> I don't I don't see her in much. Do you? I don't know that I do either, but based on what I found, I mean, she is in everything. She makes appearances in the past, maybe not full things about her. In TV, movies, books. She's often used in worship. Even Buddhists and Hindus pray to her. And it's really incredible to me that she has like such a diverse audience. I don't know if that's the right word for that or following. I mean, like I said, I haven't consciously been aware of seeing her, but there are pagans that are Hecatean witchcraft pagans. And it's wow. Okay. She's good. She's got her crew for sure. It's almost like that same respect that we see from the Hesiod's passage. You can pray to her and she's part of a a very real religion, but she's not in media as much. And I wonder if that is a sign of respect. Not to say that we like throw Morgana away in all of our roles that we put her in, but it's almost like choking a ragdoll with Morgana Mm. and you're a fairy and you're a sorceress and you're a witch. Mm. But Hecate has this realm of, you know, she's used currently in, in very deep beliefs. Maybe you don't mess with that in media, at least not at the moment. Yeah. I mean, it could definitely go back to that whole idea of like she appears when needed. Yes. I like that. I like that a lot. 
So we answered all of our basic questions, but yes. any discussion that you would like to add? What, what do you think of, of her as a witch or a goddess? Or? I really like that she is described in some places as being a dark goddess. She's kind of like an anti-hero in some cases. And she's really diverse, which is, I don't know, it's like it doesn't feel like poor writing, for instance, her diversity, her ability to take form in all these different ways. It feels more organic, like that's part of the character. And that's a really hard thing to convince an audience of. So I think that's really special and unique. And that makes sense that she kind of rides this line between goddess, good, and witch, bad. You know, I wish I had a better overall understanding of Greek mythology because it's just not something that sticks in my brain. But she seems like one of those characters that would be very interesting to see fictionalized. I mean, now and in what ways you could you could take that character. That it could be used for good. I very much respect her after all this research and I respect that current religions actually use her in such deep ways. But this might be the perfect opportunity to have the non, call them like non-believers, but just media consumers in general to know that she had that much influence. Hmm. Because you're right, there's so many topics to choose from. I mean, threshold alone is such a fascinating topic. And I learned later that hag, hexe, hag is actually German, hexe, am I saying it right? Maybe not. Hexa? Hexa, hexa, hag, yeah that that was originally associated with fences, borders. Hmm. And that makes sense if witches were on the border between life and death, Hmm. conscious and the unconscious, that they can traverse both worlds. And in her case, all three worlds, because she had realms of all three. And the whole Persephone and going with her in the underworld when they were looking for Persephone, she was between borders. She was able to go between all of these realms and basically do good. I mean, it, some of it, like you said, is anti-hero-ish. But when you look at the tales told later, it was mostly good. She saved people by changing them into animals, women especially, women who were bearing children and people who died that she would like hang out with when they were ghosts. And she even did battle at the beginning of time. Like she helped defeat the Titans and she was a warrior. I am. What can't she do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amongst all of that, she knows her herbs. She knows what plants can kill you and can cure you. Mm. And she teaches it to so many women. Her knowledge was just dispersed and she wanted that to happen. She wanted women to be entitled which is why you have all these sub-witch characters. So I'm like, yeah, that was the original witch. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Let's look at that more and let's make some movies out of that. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of really interesting places you could go with with that. That was number one. Number two, the next character we'll be talking about is Morgan Le Fay and also the character Morgane in this case. Um, in, in Arthurian legend, Morgan Le Fay, which means Morgan the fairy, is a powerful enchantress. That's my definition. Charlotte, I think you should tell us more about this character. Oh, I was going to say that's actually really good. Other than she came from Arthurian legends, which is considered a romance. Uh, romance in the sense nowadays or romance is in like an epic tragedy good point it is mainly epic tragedy mm-hmm. you know if you think of greek tragedy and roman tragedy legacies and legends like king arthur as a legend rather than a historic figure she's in that realm of she will probably never die for that reason mm-hmm. and because she is romanticized that she can be kind of turned so often by artists into what they need or want. Nice. Even when the legend began of Arthur, King Arthur and his Knights of the Round Table, she went through so many changes within a span of just a few hundred years. Wow. 
thousands of years later, like, what are we doing to her now? It's that many renditions of who she is and what she does. Hmm. So keep that in mind. Well, and that's that's the original source, right? Do you want to tell us about that? Yes. Sorry. Yeah. Let me back up. So the very first Arthurian legend that she appears in is called Vita Merlini, written by Jeffrey Monmouth in it's circa 1150. We're not quite sure. This is great. The way she's introduced, she's the ruler of Avalon. And Avalon is is a fictional place. No, it's real. (laughs) We believe in it. What is it? (laughs) That's true. The followers of King Arthur and his predicted return is so fascinating in itself. Mm. But it's said that he was taken to Avalon to later be revived one day. Hmm. Kind of like a Christ thing. You know, Christ will return. Arthur will return. I love it. So in the very first passage where she's brought up, she is the ruler of Avalon and she's part of nine sisters being the oldest of them and the most trained in crafts and healing and things like mathematics. And I mean, there's even a passage they brought up that says she taught mathematics to her sisters Nice. And I'm like, wow, even that little detail, like, that's great. Yeah. And she's the ruler of this island. And what they do is they bring Arthur to be healed by her. She already has a reputation. And obviously, she's the ruler, so she can say if he stays or not. Maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. (laughs) Oh, no, no, good. I do have the passage here. I shared the passage with you, right, from Vita Merlini. Good, good. Okay, then I can talk about it. Because in this passage, it says the island of apples, which men call the fortunate isle, gets its name from the fact that it produces all things of itself. And people live there a hundred years or more. Already we're getting a fantastical setup for this island of Avalon and its waters and how it's out of the realm of men. And it has abundance, apples and fresh yeah it seems like it has a place of abundance kind of like an eden like if if women ruled eden this is what it would be it would be avalon Uh, what's that place called where wonder woman lives timiscira yeah like that yeah there nine sisters rule by a pleasing set of laws she who is first of them is more skilled in the healing art and excels her sisters in the beauty of her person Morgan is her name, and she has learned what useful properties all herbs contain so that she can cure sick bodies. She also knows an art by which to change her shape and to cleave the air on new wings like Daedalus. I don't need to read this next part, but basically they bring Arthur to her and she says she can heal him. It'll take some time, but they entrust him to her. And that's their high king. Yeah. A sign of huge respect. And this is what I said, 1150 AD. We're still in a patriarchy, but this writer is writing her like she has this tremendous respect. And power. Power over life and death. Yeah. See? All the original Hecate, she's a shapeshifter. She can, I don't know if Hecate can fly, but that's kind of cool. Yeah, it's cool. (laughs) That's the first source for Arthurian legend and Morgana. What is it? Vita Merlini. It sounds very Italian. Right? That's life of Merlin. Yeah. I also I shared with I also shared with Jen an excerpt from the most popular rendition of King Arthur. And it's a shame that this happens to be the most popular one. And I read the whole damn thing. I just need to show <laughs> if we're ever showing this video to anybody, this is the actual book. It's huge. It's gigantic. She has notes everywhere. I can't believe you read the whole thing. It's amazing. So many post-its. <laughs> I have to admit it's worth it because I feel like King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table are referenced so often that now I know what the classic authors and modern Arthur Arthurs Arthurs. Arthurs. (laughs) (laughs) All you Arthur Arthurs. Oh the Arthur authors. (laughs) That's so funny. There you go. (laughs) I know what they're talking about now and it's helpful. And where you can improve it. Yes. Yes. But unfortunately, in Thomas Mallory's Le Mort Their Author, The Death of Arthur, Morgan Le Fay is not complex. She's not good. And she's hardly in it. Hmm. Two thumbs down for Thomas Mallory. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, really. And this guy apparently was pretty sexist and awful. Oh, so good. no sympathy Great. there. Yeah. Okay, cool. The one passage I shared with you, and this is all I'm going to read from it. 
The third sister, Morgan Le Fay, was put to school in a nunnery, and there she learned so much that she was a great clerk of necromancy. Great. That's, That's it. Great. <laughs> uh, I'm so glad she became a clerk of necromancy. That's nice. <laughs> I especially like the middle part. That was very exciting. School in a nunnery. Yep. Um, and I'm so glad that she learned so much. That sounds like a junior high student talking about pretending that they went to like high school and it's like i learned so much it <laughs> it's i it just i learned so much it's like okay great <laughs> cool and that was written 1485 so i don't know how many hundred years that is 11 to 14 11 12 13 14 so like 300 400 years later hmm. that's where morgan lefay's at that should tell us a lot and i i'm going to talk more about all the phases that she went through in our discussion so for that source i'm just going to leave it at that i believe you have a very modern source though that i would love to hear i do so i kind of merged i didn't mean to but i kind of merged the source with this other information so the my source <laughs> was The Mists of Avalon, which is a multi-book series. came out in 1983. It's a historical fantasy novel by Marion Zimmer Bradley. And we'll talk more about it. But I will say the first book alone is over 850 pages. And there are like 10 books. So there's a lot there. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit. And I'm glad we picked three for Morgan Le Fay. Because like I said, I think she's gone through the most change. And we have the original source. We have what's considered the most popular or most read source. And then a contemporary source, The Mists of Avalon, I would say, even though it's written in the 80s, I would still say it's pretty well read today, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's one of the only books of its kind where they illustrate the Arthurian legends from the perspective of the female characters. <sighs> even for 1983 till now... There isn't another book, really, that does it in a way that so many people know about it. I'm sure they exist somewhere, but this is really the well-known one. Excellent. Good. Before we start discussing those sources, because I, oh, we're going to have so much to say about them. <laughs> Let me switch into my historian mode. mode to place her in history. And it's so easy to say she belonged in the medieval era. Because King Arthur belonged in the medieval era. This is where the legend began and ended. Not like ended. Obviously, we still know King Arthur to the extreme. And we are using him in so much media currently. But where he was most revered as a legend, what I would say is in the medieval era. Because they really needed something <laughs> at that time. And the whole romanticism of the knights of the round table was big. It's almost like the same romance that comes from the 12 apostles in the Bible. That's how influential the names like Sir Gawain and Lancelot are, were and are, I would say. True. Very true. And obviously Morgan Le Fay is part of that. You say Morgan Le Fay and, and most people know that or they would associate her with being Arthur's half-sister, for example. She's either his enemy a family member or the bad guy in most <laughs> tales of Arthur. But he, there's a lot of debate about whether he existed or not. But if he did exist, it would be around 400 AD, which is when the Anglo-Saxons were starting to invade Britain. Because before that, it was like the Celtic origins. And then it was like the Romans who invaded. And then it became the Britain that we know. A lot of cultures coming in and out of this realm. <sighs> Let's contain it for this discussion saying that medieval era and where Arthur thrived the most with Morgan Le Fay was around 400 AD to, let's say, the 1400s. This was the beginning of Christianity. Everybody started converting at this time because there was such... Oh, yes, we have a question <laughs> from the audience, Miss Hansen. <laughs> I, I don't know if it's relevant, but in the stories, the Knights of the Round Table and the book that you were talking about, and because of the time, do they talk about the plague? Does the plague come into play? Not the Black Plague, right? Is that the okay. main one that infected medieval era? Yeah. But they do talk about mass illnesses and people okay. being lost to illness. Well, that makes sense. I mean, it was disgusting, so. Right. <laughs> <laughs> makes sense. And then with so much war going on, people were dying 
for that yeah. too. Like there was just so much death. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, that's a good question because we might bring that up later too, like the plague and why women during the witch trials were said to be a, a big blame for that because they were the only medicine women that they had. But in this context, Christianity was starting to spread everywhere. So even the original healer or the original goddess, all of that was still there within what they would call the tribes, the natives, I would say, maybe of Britain. Those beliefs were there, but they were already being trumped. The one God and faith in priests was spread so often that the healer woman would probably be already called a witch and they're trying to sweep them away. Yeah. Crazy, crazy, crazy. So it makes sense that Morgan of the fairies is first a ruler and then called a fairy because even then fairies of the Celtic beliefs were superstitious and scary, whereas before they would have been kind of a cool thing for the tribes to be around. I was going to say, and it would be a good omen. Yeah. I mean, it would be, if, especially if you consider like medicine women, like that's a good thing. That's having a healer in your tribe at, or village or whatever. And it's just amazing how quickly that can be turned over. I hate to keep bashing on Christianity, but let's say, let's say the historical acts of Christianity. It's very good at sweeping away all of that under the category of demonic and even in villages and rural areas, that catches pretty quickly. Because if you can have everybody under one God and act one way, it's more convenient. It just is. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Christians. Old Christians, <laughs> not yeah. modern Christianity so much. I mean, I guess it's all connected, but like rough origins, rough origins. Right. That we, we just lost a lot. And it's unfortunate. So... The character today, how do we see her today? Everywhere. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I thought you might elaborate, but yes, period. What I ended up finding was that in both Marvel and DC Comics, there are versions of Morgan Le Fay, <gasps> um, and they're both supervillains. They're considered supervillains. And one gives her black magic. Uh, I think that's Marvel gives her black magic. And the DC, I think it's DC, makes her a half fairy, half elven heritage that makes her immortal. And she occasionally tries to take over the world, as one does when they're a supervillain. Which I think is really interesting that even comic books have... I mean, I guess they do that a lot with Greek myths and things like that. But seems like such a unique character to pick for a comic book. But it seems like in modern iterations, in her case, she tends to be a villain. Stereotypically seductive, megalomaniac, power hungry, which I think is cool. I love it. But I understand the problem being that that's not really the point. I mean, the point is that she is powerful, but that doesn't mean that she's power hungry. And just as a sidebar, I was looking into the show Merlin, which is pretty popular and sidebar in the fan fiction world morgana and gwen from merlin have like a huge following like they're a huge presence online so i just thought that was an interesting tidbit that there are instances of morgana also being a lesbian and i'm sure she's been taken under the wing of all different kinds of groups who are underrepresented i agree that it's intriguing her being the like antagonistic powerful witch versus like a helpless witch. The entire time, in most renditions, she's very powerful. That's a good, good place to start. What I don't like is the flatness. Thomas mm. Mallory was just so difficult to get through because all of his mm. women were flat and nothing. They were just nothing. Mm. But when I started seeing things like Miss of Avalon, it's the same kind of character, but now you're it on her side. It's from her perspective. Do you want to talk more about Avalon then? As, yeah. And then and then I do want to mention something about Merlin, but let's do Avalon first because that's intriguing. Okay. Let's see. Yeah, I mentioned this, but the Miss of Avalon illustrates the Arthurian legends from the perspective of female characters, which is so scandalous. How dare she? Um, <laughs> the book follows the main character, Morgane, who is Morgan Le Fay, but she's a priestess fighting to save her Celtic religion when Christianity begins to encroach and destroy the more peaceful and matriarchal pagan way of life. This book, the first one, is dense. It's dense times dense times dense. Charlotte here got me the whole entire book series, and I think I made it about 200 pages into the first one, and I needed a break. There's a lot covered in this book, and 
it honestly would be impossible to give a summary of even the first book without it being like an essay. So I'm not going to go too far into that. Uh, but I wanted to share a passage or two that I think are good examples of how Morgan Le Fay is adapted in her books. So this is the first quote. Now, in truth, I have come to be a wise woman, and a time may come when these things may need to be known. But in sober truth, I think it is the Christians who will tell the last tale. Forever the world of fairy drifts further from the world in which the Christ holds sway. I have no quarrel with Christ, only with his priests, who call the great goddess a demon and deny that she ever held power in this world. At best, they say that her power was of Satan, or else they clothe her in the blue robe of the Lady of Nazareth, who indeed had power in her way too, and say that she was ever a virgin, and say that she was ever virgin. But what can a virgin know of the sorrow and travail of mankind? It's beautiful. So it's kind of a beautiful passage in some ways, and it's problematic in other ways, but that's kind of Marion Zimmer from as far as I know. She's really hit some really great stuff, and she's also very problematic in other ways. But I liked this passage as... This is just not something you would see a man write because she gives the Lady of Nazareth the power that she deserves. Like she acknowledges that, but she also talks about like how that doesn't connect for her as a character. And I think that's really cool. What did you think about that quote? I love it. I have to confess something though. Yes. Because I would not have read those books either when I saw the thickness, even when I gave them to you, I was like, I don't know if I could read something (laughs) like that. (laughs) just take them however (laughs) i have to admit i started listening to them audiobooks nice and i am on book four the last book (gasps) wow that's how far i've gotten by just listening to them it is so much easier to listen to bradley than read her like you said there's some problems behind it and i definitely would not have written it like the way she wrote it as far as what's happening and how But she is linking, and this is brilliant, this is what I would do. She is linking all the known tales of King Arthur Hmm. and knights that you know and the big events of Arthurian tales are there in her book. But the way she gets to those events and what the women do because or after those events is brilliant. And that is great because then you have a cult following. You have, even if you don't like women, which is weird, that's a weird thing to say. <laughs> but let's say you like King Arthur in the tales and you are a man. I would still read Bradley and the Mists of Avalon because she is telling the exact same events. But it is from right. the woman's perspective and they are doing things to make those events happen. As women do, right? Yes. And they would appreciate it. I know they would. I mean, I would hope that any true Arthurian scholar or researcher or fan would read all versions and this one included. And that's a really good idea. I mean, I'm sure Audible. Do you listen to it on Audible? They're actually on YouTube. YouTube. There you go. Even cheaper. And then I wanted to mention this other quote, which is very short, but I think it says a lot. There are ignorant priests and ignorant people who are all too ready to cry sorcery if a woman is only a little wiser than they are. That's like all of history in like a sentence. I feel it on every level of my body. It's just like, yeah, that's exactly what it's like. So I think both of these quotes highlight the duality of the witch and the healer and also benevolent and malevolent, good and evil, all that stuff, and how that can be put on to a healer and make her a witch. She becomes a witch because of an outside source. And Bradley does do a good job of going back to her roots, which is, they call them priestesses. Priestesses. (laughs) Priestesses. Priestesses (laughs) of Avalon. Everything is happening out of Avalon. That's the old religion. That's where the Druids come from, and the goddess is still revered. And it is. It's an absolute butting of heads with the monotheistic Christian god. So it's basically the goddess versus the god in her books. And it's interesting because she argues theology often with her characters. And it's different characters who will argue it. The like hardcore Christians will argue with the hardcore... Pagans? The people of the old tradition. She doesn't actually use the word pagans, but... Okay. What is, what is she... She calls, she calls them tribes people because they're still tribes. Celtic tribes, like you said. Hmm. That's totally true today. There's many faces of the divine, is what the tribes usually say. Hmm. 
And that doesn't mean God is not part of it. But what the Christians right. say is God is all of it. And you, mm -hmm. I don't, we don't know how to do that. That's why we put so much on Mary the Virgin, because we don't know where to put those energies. It can't just be one. It can't, it, that doesn't work. I think that's a really good summary of exactly what the point of contention is for both parties. One is like nature focused and believes in like this, this give and take of the world. And one believes in one, give or take, <laughs> one who determines everything. Like I'm just saying what you just said, but yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it. And all that's to say Morgan Le Fay is, is just titled witch because at this point the Christians have taken hold and they wouldn't know how to call her a priestess or a goddess. It just wouldn't dawn on them. So by everybody, she's the witch or the fairy, which the fairy at this point mm -hmm. has the negative connotations behind it. They're the wild, the unknown, the people of the mist. Interesting. Do you, So do you want to tell us about Merlin, the show Merlin? Oh, interesting. Yeah. And just to say that my opinions, because I watched the whole series too. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I couldn't help it. Yeah, it was. I mean, this was like years ago, actually. I watched it and it's it's good. I would recommend it. And it's family friendly. It, you know, it's very dulled down. They don't talk about Christianity, which I think is a good idea on their part. And the way it starts is really interesting because Guinevere and Morgan, Morgana? Morgana. Morgana, sorry. Mm. Are amazing friends. They begin as mm. like confidence, confidants. Nice. Excuse me. Confidants. And then the way they switch her character is so flat. It's just like all of a sudden she's evil and it, it doesn't work. And the way they end her tale is very Thomas Mallory. Hmm. She had to be hmm. the enemy. She's still Arthur's half-sister, which they don't play enough with either, in my opinion. But it's just flat witch. Whereas Merlin is this great sorcerer. It's always Merlin's magic and Morgana's magic. The bad magic, the good magic. It's not very respectful to that old religion of the druids and of the fairies. Is Merlin a white guy? Yeah. Is he an old white guy? No. <laughs> that was Interesting. like a twist. <laughs> Is he like a handsome young white guy? Yeah. Yeah, of course. I okay. mean, he's pretty scrawny. Oh, okay. And he's actually, he's very feminine in all his aspects. He's very feminine because Arthur's the big masculine dummy, uh. <laughs> which is not very accurate. <laughs> Arthur was said to be a good king, but it's fun. It is fun. If that sounds like something you're interested in, go check out Merlin. We have no association with it, but there you go. <laughs> you can also read Morgana Gwen fan fiction, if that's your thing. Enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, do you have an exit statement by chance about Morgan Le Fay? Oh my god, Jen. I totally have an exit <laughs> statement for Morgan Le Fay. <laughs> I would love to hear your exit statement for Morgan Le Fay. <laughs> Uh, there was something I needed to say before the statement. Oh, that. Okay. So like I said, that she's gone through all these versions and even early on going from the leader of Avalon to somehow being Arthur's half sister to being a nymph to being a sorceress, just plain flat witch. And then she was Guinevere's enemy and she seduced Lancelot at one point and she married the king of urines and maybe was the mother to Mordred who kills King Arthur she maybe was a student of Merlin she was maybe a lover of Merlin they just throw her around that's why I called her a ragdoll and I don't know if that's good or bad obviously it's still negative in a lot of ways it's a very intriguing concept if they had more than one female character they wouldn't have to do that they could have like more than one female character, like as staples, not just as like side characters. But that's a whole other issue. Yes, I would agree with that. And then I watched a short video on YouTube. I pulled the statement out of what he was saying because I think this is great. Early appearances of Morgan do not elaborate her character beyond her role as a goddess, a fae, a witch, or a sorceress. Generally benevolent and relating to King Arthur as his magical savior and protector. Her prominence increased over time, as did her moral ambivalence. And in some texts, there is an evolutionary transformation of her to an antagonist. I would say that's putting it lightly. I would say like nowadays, she is mostly an antagonist. If we lived back then, I think there was quite a few of her versions where she was still the helper and ally to Arthur, the healer to Arthur. <laughs> That's all I have to say about Morgan Le Fay. I'm done. Very good. I. It's very interesting.
a really fascinating topic. I'm really glad we're talking about this. We are going to split this up into two episodes because we have a lot to say about this and it's a really interesting history. So this will be the end of part one. Again, thank you to everyone who voted in the poll for this. It's a really interesting topic. I'm really glad we're doing an episode two episodes on this. As usual, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter and on our website, bitethepen.com. And we want to give a huge shout out to our Patreon pen biters, Jesse M., J.R. Keeler, Thunderfly, Jeanette M., and we have a new patron, Lara Z. Thank you guys so much for your support. If you would also like to be a Patreon pen biter, you do not have to. It's perfectly fine. We love that you listen. Don't feel pressured. But if you would like to be a Patreon pen biter, you can go to patreon.com and bite the pen. 